0: Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity aside from possibly cash-like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong.
1: Well, Paul, this was a good one. Uh, I had a lot of fun tonight. We just talked about homeless health care with returning guest, Stefan Curtace. This is the Curbsiders. But before we we get too far, can you tell the audience, what do we do on this show? Always happy to. We are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We
2: use expert interviews to bring you clinical referrals and practice changing knowledge. And what an expert we have, someone who's been on the show before. Um, who I could talk endlessly about but won't because we have the great Nora Toronto here, our producer for the episode, who's going to tell us exactly who we talked to and what we talked about.
3: Awesome. Hey, guys. I'm so excited to be with you tonight and to have had the privilege to talk to Dr. Curtis as well. Um, I still remember him wowing me a couple years ago when he was on episode 74 of the Curbsiders and talked about opioid use disorder kind of in the midst of the beginning of the opioid crisis. Um, He... He lived up to expectation in this episode as well when he uh, gave us lots of clinical pearls and tips of the trade on uh, how to care best for one of our most vulnerable populations, uh, our population of patients who are experiencing homelessness. So excited to bring this episode to you guys.
1: Our guest, Dr. Stefan Kertes, is an internal medicine and addiction physician who has focused his research and clinical work and advocacy on the care of individuals experiencing homelessness and other complex vulnerabilities since 1996. He's a professor at University of Alabama, Birmingham and Birmingham VA Medical Center. His research has focused on homelessness, housing, addiction, and his team recently surveyed almost 6,000 veterans who have experienced homelessness to find out about their primary care. As Nora said, we talk... All about homelessness, including terminology, some of the epidemiology, and then we talk about a lot of the common conditions and some clinical pearls, uh, how to approach those, whether as a hospital seeing patients or in primary care. It's going to be really useful for your practice. So, without further ado, here is our discussion with Stefan Kertes.
3: Oh, and I don't wow, know. Look at that.
1: We we did great, <laughs> Stefan. <laughs> You know, this this clapping thing that we do at the start of the show, even if we didn't have to do it for recording purposes, I think we do it because it get, it brings us in with a good energy. So welcome back. And can you give the audience a one-liner to describe yourself?
0: Yeah, I'm a general medicine, internal medicine doc with an interest in addiction. I've done research and care and advocacy focused on vulnerable populations for the last 20 years.
1: All right. And we're going to ask you, I know you've been on the show before, but it's been I want to say two years or something. Yeah, it was like, a, like episode that. 74, maybe. So it's been a while. So I'll let uh, Nora, do you have any questions?
3: Oh, I've got some great questions lined up. Um, what is a book or what is the book that you are currently reading that you think every physician should read?
0: Well, I am partial to my friend, Saul Weiner, who's written a book called uh, on becoming a healer, the journey from patient care to caring about your patients, and I think it offers a very uh, common sense, human discussion of what challenges we encounter in forming relationships with patients, the negotiation of our own boundaries, uh, and how to think about patient care decision making. And it's only 200 pages; it's a pretty easy read.
1: And this is uh, th- I I have to say, this is just a, it's an odd coincidence because. Literally last night, I was taking a picture of the book and telling Paul that I was I was reading it and I think he would like it that that I think Paul should read this too, and uh, I'm two thirds of the way through. I'm really enjoying it. I think it just has a lot of it. It we were talking about this in the pre-recording a little bit. He's talking a lot about how to engage with patients, um, and and making a good case for for why we should do that. And it's interesting to think about that in this time of COVID nineteen where it's made it harder than ever to engage with patients because of this physical distancing uh, that that is just naturally there now. And also yeah. the shortened time for, like if you are in the room with a patient, you're not trying to spend extra time in there because the longer you are, the you know the higher your effects are. So anyway, but I, I would highly recommend the book and I'm sure we'll probably talk about it more in the future as uh, more of our team is exposed to it.
2: How I ask, I, I think next question is just based on um, our abortive attempts at clapping at the same time. Let me ask about your favorite failure. um, (laughs) And then if you could tell me what you learned from it as well, that's often helpful for our listeners.
0: Yeah. So uh, my favorite failure is one that is arguably very um, challenging and embarrassing, but I've talked about it before. I was a uh, very bright Harvard medical student in 1993 and uh, scored you know, honors on my internal medicine rotation at Mass General, and eventually applied for residency with almost all my advisors being from Mass General. And uh, actually, I had had this intense rotation where I'd really focused on every possible need the patients needed in identifying them for my residents and working them up in the middle of the night. And when I put in my, uh, my application list, uh, maybe a few weeks before the match, I saw one of my advisors a wonderful doctor who said, good luck on the match. I did everything for you that I could. And I thought that was great, Uh, figuring of an insider was telling me they did everything for me that they could. But someone right next to me at the time said, you know, that doesn't sound so good, actually. (laughs) And when my match list came out, uh, I actually was in shock, like a classic little Harvard med student thinking, you're going to get your first pick if you had honors there, and i thought you know massachusetts doesn't begin with a b this is a typo and what it said was beth israel hospital so i was you know 20 years ago or more in shock and devastated and oddly enough the same story crept out uh from multiple members of the selection team that i had fallen down the list and i'd fallen down the list because despite my honors grade I had annoyed the crap out of a medical resident and the thing that annoyed them had to do with all the times I discovered all sorts of problems that needed to be worked up in the middle of the night uh, that I was obsessing over and adding to their workload. And it it became a subject of debate on the committee. I know you're not supposed to hear about this. And of course, at the time I felt it was terribly unfair uh, and I could argue it still is. But the truth <laughs> is, I eventually realized that the thing they didn't like about me, was an actual thing about me. And admittedly, for other people, it wasn't a major problem. I went on to Beth Israel, it was fine. I still had that same character, Twitch, and people noticed it and helped me through it. And even today, in my 50s, running a research team, I need people to tell me when to let up and not pursue something that I'm obsessive and nervous about. And so, you know, the rejection was a failure. Arguably it wasn't the worst character flaw to have, but it annoyed somebody. And sometimes it annoys me.
1: <laughs> that that sounds very relatable. I'm sure you're not the only person in our audience. Uh, this is an internal medicine podcast who is the obsessive, maybe type A that just like has to ask other people, like, Am I being crazy? Like, do I need to <laughs> Yeah.
2: Right. Yeah. I was saying the same thing. That sounds quintessentially internal medicine. So I, I'm not, that should have been completely in the pro column, but I was <laughs> out on the committee at the time.
1: Well, I, I think we, we have a, t- a big topic to talk about tonight. Uh, we've already, we've already talked about a book, uh, Nora, before we get on to the topic, did you want to give a quick pick of the week? And, and Paul and I will, will skip our, our picks of the week for tonight.
3: Sure. Um. So my pick of the week is actually another podcast. I don't know if you guys have heard of it. It's called Backstory. Um. It's an American history podcast, and it's uh run by uh three or four uh, historians at various universities throughout the United States. Um. And they do kind of deep dives into random interesting topics. Uh, so my favorite one recently that I've listened to is, uh, it's a history of dynamite and they, they kind of track, uh, interesting content in American history throughout different, uh, centuries and decades and share a lot of just like very interesting human stories within it. So Highly recommend. It's actually nearing its end now. They're almost done with their production of it after somewhere around 10 years.
1: Very cool. Thank you for the recommendation. And the next question for you is, can you please read our case from Cashlack Memorial? And let's, let's go into this topic here.
3: All right. So our case, we have a Mr. Tim Jones. He is scheduled with you for a post-emergency department visit in your primary care clinic um, in order to establish care. Doesn't have a primary care doctor. Um, He was seen in the emergency department for abdominal pain, was discharged after he got some IV fluids, got a CT that didn't have any concerning findings um, to explain his abdominal pain, and it kind of resolved on its own. Medical history includes uh, chronic back pain on chronic opioids, hypertension, coronary artery disease, has some stents, but he isn't really sure how many or um, how long ago he got his last one, um, and PTSD he comes to your clinic and on your intake form you notice that he has listed the hospital address actually as his address so i guess the first question for me kind of with a patient like this coming in is how how you would actually go about asking a patient like this um where you have concerns about their um status um in terms of their housing um how how you ask them where they live
0: yeah I think that the question, are you homeless, sometimes can be tricky because there's potential metaphorical meanings to it. People think different things. It can be stigmatizing. Uh, it's often, for a lot of reasons, we'll get to that in a sec, but I think the simplest thing is to start by saying, hey, where did you? Where have you been staying? Uh, it could be important to how we figure out your health care plan. Where did you stay last night? Uh can you tell me, is that a place that you control? Is it your own place or is it somebody else's? So let's say they say, well, I stayed last night at a house in the north part of town. You say, well, was that your place? Is that your own place? And they might say, well, yeah, it's, it's my place. So is that a place you can always go back to? Is it your own home? So you want I usually try to get to ultimately a question like, when's the last time you stayed in a place that was your own and that you knew you could stay there on an ongoing basis? And usually in that response to that, I'll either get clarity that they had their own home for a period, and then recently they've been staying in a mixture of places. It may be a shelter, it may be outdoors, it may be their sister's house, or it's somebody whose house they pick up and they're allowed to stay in a shed out back. But it'll be, and once they say, well, I had my own place a year ago, and since then it's been kind of here and there, then you start to say, well, where were you most recently? So that's how I go about it. Bear in mind, the trick with Are You Homeless is that most people think, of the homeless as a group that is kind of static but in fact homelessness is a state not a trait uh it it, it's something that comes and goes so you have to kind of be sensitive to the idea that people go in and out of it just like swimming you're you could be a swimmer but you're not always in the pool so uh,
2: as someone who takes care of uh, i think several different vulnerable patient populations um i i I guess, what am I, how am I trying to say this? I guess I have a lot of interest in sort of the language that is sort of used in terms of how we're actually describing these patients. And I saw an interesting discussion on Twitter, do we overmedicalize things? And using phrases like under domicile, is that even necessary? One person was very annoyed by it. And then other people actually were in support of it because homelessness, as you say, can notes a, a certain stereotype for some people in your head. So I guess my, my question, this is a long-winded way of asking, is when discussing this particular patient population, is there a preferred terminology for caregivers or for the patients themselves? Does it matter at all? Am I thinking too much about it?
0: In the literature, I've moved toward persons experiencing homelessness, uh, partly to reinforce uh, the the fact that it comes and goes. I also have said homeless persons, uh, and that doesn't fully get rid of the potential, but it it kind of reminds you it's a person who's having this thing that's homelessness. I don't usually use the homeless except in certain very generic pronouncements, uh, partly to avoid misconstruing who I'm speaking about. I asked I've asked around about domiciled, and I haven't really come to any conclusions on that one,
2: yeah, that's the one I heard kind of tossed around or I hear sort of undomiciled or under domiciled. And I just wasn't it does it does feel like a very complicated way of some saying something that's well, I guess actually kind of complicated, but I guess we'll
0: talk about that. I also say people who don't have a home right now <laughs>
1: <laughs> you mentioned that that homelessness is is a state that's in flux. Patients can come in and out of it. Any any stats that stick out that you wanted to highlight for the audience?
0: Sure. Roughly about 20% of people who experience homelessness are going to have it recur several times or have a single long episode. Uh, sometimes those the two groups that kind of get lumped together are people of recurrent episodes, which... Uh, maybe about ten to fifteen percent, and people who have single long episodes that are highly enduring, which might be another ten percent. So there's probably in there, you know, depending on the population, how you set up the study, six to eighty percent who have single episodes that end.
1: Yeah, because I, I I think um, you know pop in popular culture, it would have you believe patients who are homeless all have schizophrenia and mm-hmm. are have or will just c- continuously be homeless. But in, in the encounters that we see in the hospital, it that's not everybody that we see and it's it's hard to just get a sense of these these numbers
0: right whenever i say something about homeless people everybody thinks there's a person who approached them panhandling in front of the hospital who they've seen there every day mm-hmm. and so that person becomes the archetype and it's really hard it's quite hard to recognize all the other people who have experienced homelessness at the same time who aren't necessarily cropping up in your emergency room on saturday night and aren't panhandling at all so inadvertently, we kind of overlook a pretty large group of people who are going in and out of homelessness or returning to housing, as we often see in the Veterans Administration.
1: Why don't we move on to the second part of the case Because and, and just kind of see where this yeah. takes us? Nora, did you want to?
3: Sure. So we, we have another patient who uh, comes in for a teleclinic visit, actually, because it's the COVID times, um, and they pick up the phone, uh, their cell phone, in the shelter where they're staying. So, so you kind of are past the point where you need to be inquiring about their, their um, homeless or home um, and domestic domiciled status. Um, we know that homelessness affects health. Kind of what's different about practicing medicine uh, with patients experiencing homelessness?
0: So there's medical factors, there's environmental factors, there's trust, and then there's kind of health systems issues. So on the medical side, uh, maybe before the environmental ones, people who are homeless today are increasingly over the age of 45, over the age of 50. Uh, They are often individuals who have a chronological age that lags their biological age. So they might even be older in some sense, medically, and they have all the illnesses that middle-aged and late middle-aged adults are eligible to have, hypertension, high blood pressure, you know, uh, diabetes, uh, cancer risk, uh, liver disease, et cetera. So there's a fair amount of medical morbidity that you just have to be prepared for, to ask about. And because it's America, a lot of folks actually have been through various forms of healthcare and have some knowledge of what they have. I guess on the medical side as well, you know, we could add, the behavioral conditions, uh, and traumatic conditions. So addiction and addiction recovery are both highly relevant in caring for individuals who are homeless. If a certain number, you know, depending on the study, 20 to 60% have some history of an addiction disorder. These are usually cross-sectional studies, but a significant percentage who are seeking medical care are in recovery uh, and have stopped using. So that becomes part of the fabric. And you have to ask about, gosh, you know, I want to ask about substance use. Um, what's going on now? You might ask about that any way that you normally do in primary care, but it's reasonable to ask, you know, was there a time previously where alcohol or drug use was part of your life? And you'll discover a ton of folks who are seeking medical care precisely because they've left the drugs and alcohol behind. The other side of uh, psychological stuff is mental health diagnoses, which are, you know, disproportionate among individuals who experience homelessness. Those include post-traumatic stress disorder, you know, schizophrenia is by far from the most common thing, but probably you know two, three, four percent. I am ballparking that. Uh, but it's not a very high percentage of individuals you'll take care of, but it will come out. I, would, I will correct the record if I discover the number is totally off there. <laughs> uh, the in terms of post-traumatic stress or a history of stressful events that might lead to post-traumatic stress is really high. I don't have a number for you there, but you should expect that that's reasonably prevalent. Chronic pain uh, in our, Recent survey, uh, survey of about no, 4,700 veterans who had been homeless and are using VA primary care, about 39 to 40% have severe chronic pain. So obviously the case example you gave the first time before this telehealth one had ongoing opioids, that is gonna be part of the fabric, not necessarily the opioids consistently, but the pain. Environmental factors that are really important to pay attention to are where are you, where you're storing your stuff, When you sleep, are you sleeping in a safe place? Where do you keep your medicines? If the medicines include controlled substances, are you able to control those? If it includes insulin, do you have a way to keep it less than hot? Uh, So the questions about where you are and where you store stuff are pretty helpful. And then I guess it's not an environmental factor, but a social factor is what about money? And what kind of income do you have currently? The other social question I usually ask um, there is, where are you going? And what do you see as, as coming up? Are you on your pa- are you on a path to some place that you think is going to be the next step for you? Because once you know that, it gives you a lot of insight into where the individual's in life, what kinds of aspirations they have, and also your plans. If a person's planning to get back home to their daughter in another part of the country, and that's really important to them, you can pivot all your discussions of the plan that you want to do medically on helping them accomplish that. So uh, I think I got through two of my four domains there. I'm trying to remember the third and fourth one. Um, We'll come back to it.
3: Where, where, given all of that content, do you, would you recommend we start? I, I'm sure oh. that it's not, it's not at all monolithic, obviously. But Yeah. Um.
0: What's your first concern now when we're talking? That's the first thing. And very early in the game, I think it's crucial. If you're not seeing the person where they live, I think it's really important to understand, well, where did you come from and where are you going? Where, where are you staying? So, but what's your concern and how can I help? I think after you get what's your concern and how can I help, And where are you coming from? It's reasonable to pry through other things based on the situation. They're on the phone in a shelter. Uh, In that situation, they may have some imminent medical needs that we need to attend to. Let's say I don't have much of a medical history in front of me. To my mind, at that point, I would want to understand quickly, are there medicines you're supposed to be on that you're not getting right now? Uh, Have you... Any concerns where if we where things could go wrong quickly, so either being on anticoagulants or a bleeding disorder, having diabetes, where if we don't have a plan for that, uh, your sugar could go up or down in one way or another. Uh, I think substances are worthy of inquiry early, albeit non-judgmentally, and we can talk about that, but it very, I very explicitly tell people that I ask about things and don't intend to judge them.
1: Stefan, I, there was an article that Nora had sent to us. It was by Maness, an American family physician from 2014. They were suggesting in the office visit that the first visit they like to address the symptomatic problems first to sort of just show the patient that you're trying to help them. Start to like build trust and rapport, and then you start to dig into like some of these heavy issues that are going to take. Years of trust and and like repeat visits to build through things like substance use and chronic managing chronic pain things like that. So, but a, up up front, they talk about just like getting through the symptoms. Did you do you have a similar approach or do in the first visit? You you mentioned you asked them what's their primary concern.
0: I guess the way I would say it is yes. My goal is to form a relationship, and there are many populations that have experienced terrible things in healthcare. Among them are people who have been homeless or are currently homeless. It will take time to convince that person that I'm a trustworthy caregiver, uh, that I will stand up for them, that I won't be judgmental, and that they're not there to fill off a box on my list, but that I'm there to be helpful. To achieve that end, it really is best to focus on what that person's imminent concerns are and to take the time necessary to do it. I can mention a short Story that came up to me and really launched a good part of my research career, which was that back in the late 1990s, I saw a patient out at a shelter in the Boston Harbor. I guess I should say Cashlax Boston Harbor, <laughs> but where most of our interactions were focused in the first three visits on back pain and depression and the need for a bunk bed that was on the lower bunk. And I wrote a letter about that lower bunk bed and triggered a complaint about me from the shelter because I was getting into shelter management <laughs> and annoyed people by doing that. My boss at the time said, I don't know what to make of this dispute, but you know, I noticed that in your first three visits, you didn't do an eye exam or try to get labs when the patient had a history of hypertension and it looks like you even measured one blood pressure that was high at 155 over 95 and if any managed care reviewer looks at your record you're going to make us look bad and at the time I apologized and promised to do a better job but later I realized that what I had focused on was the necessary matter of building the relationship so that I could work with the patient and I ultimately spent maybe the next 15 years developing a research agenda on how do we assess things that matter to patients that are not so easily counted. And I would agree with the approach that you mentioned in that article.
2: So, Stefan, and I'm not here to psychoanalyze you, <laughs> um, but I am hearing a recurring pattern where you focus on incredibly important details that actually annoy other people. Is this <laughs> is this something that you have have noticed throughout your life, or is this just, just two instances that we happen to be talking about during the same podcast?
0: I, you don't I, have to answer that. Oh, I was going to say it's <laughs> characterological. No, it's an open book. Uh, Now, as time has gone by, what I've noticed is that learning who people are and what their story's about is really enjoyable. So uh, that's not annoying. But what you've noticed is a real thing. (laughs) (laughs) So let me ask a more
2: serious question. And I guess we can get to sort of what the models of care look like in more detail later. But it sounds like establishing trust and rapport is really important sort of early on in these situations, especially for office face visits. How Are there any techniques or ways to kind of ensure continuity and ensure follow-up? Because I feel like that's such a large part of establishing trust and rapport.
0: A couple things come to mind. One is to uh, make sure that you're verifying the telephone number and contact information, including backup contacts at the time of your first visit. Uh, Hospital record systems don't always have the latest phone number. People often have a place that they can be reached that is not their address, and they can tell you what it is. The other thing I think is helpful is to try to bond the patient, not just to yourself, but to the nursing staff that you work with. And even to bring, you know, if the the nurse didn't see them at the beginning, bring them in and say, hey, I work here uh, with this nurse and we are a team and we are both really interested in you. And if you can't reach me, this is the nurse's phone number. We both want you to know how to reach us. Uh, The other thing is if you have a physical card that you can hand people, that's kind of a badge. And it's a way to remember, these people committed to me, they handed me their card. Uh, so if your clinic has a card, that's a good idea. I think uh, also it can be quite helpful in terms of continuity if you're in, if you're so equipped, if a member of your team stays in contact with the social service web that serves homeless individuals, that takes a different form depending on where you are it could be as simple as you're in a hospital-based clinic and there is a social worker for your clinic and you ask if they can come meet you and eventually meet the local homeless overarching organization and there's one in every community if you're in a tailored clinic like mine that means there's an outreach worker who goes once a month to a monthly meeting for homeless services for the community at large and when somebody needs to be found we know who to call
1: I want to go into talking about some of the specific diseases, but yeah. can you talk a little bit about the the mortality rate before we get to that in, in patients who are homeless? Like what's the life expectancy and, and why, why are patients, you know, why is it so different?
0: So there's a big puzzle over whether homelessness is the cause of the mortality increase or whether the factors that predispose individuals to become homeless are also major predispositions for subsequent mortality. Bear in mind that oftentimes the reason one becomes homeless is because your vulnerabilities exceed the capacity of the people you know and care about to equip you with housing. So either you can't earn money or you don't have the resource background of other people who are willing to chip in and help you pay rent. You can get there a few different ways. One is that you have one thing go wrong in your life, but no one all around you is wealthy. Uh, that is one way into that. And then that instance, probably there are not that many health vulnerabilities prior to the homelessness, but they accrue as a result of the homelessness. Conversely, it's more likely that a person falls out of the net of housing because they do have a few strikes against them. Things that render them uh, disabled and have difficulty with employment vulnerabilities that make them less attractive to an employment market uh, or even an educational vulnerability coupled with mental illness or something like that. So they're always there together. And when people get rehoused, one of the things that's very clear is that if housing alone was the cause of vulnerability, restoring housing should create health. But the National Academy of, I guess it's National Academy of Science, Engineering and Medicine reviewed that. They are unable to find persuasive evidence that housing creates health. I say that hesitantly because I believe very strongly that it's hard to establish long-term effective healthcare without a home, but you can't view removal of house and provision of house as simple cause and effect of health. So mortality, you asked about mortality. Depending on the study, depending on the subpopulation, mortality rates are three to nine times higher than age-matched population in the same region or area. So it's routinely the case that when taking care of individuals who are homeless, you're taking care of people who are more vulnerable to die, regardless of what caused that.
1: So, Paul, right out the gate, uh, well, actually, you're going to ask a question. I'll, I'll let you go. My question was going to be a joke, not really.
2: Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I like that you recognize the look on my face is about to ask you a question. Is there, just thinking things through in terms of he's saying it's sort of hard to tease out whether or not... Um, homelessness sort of leads to chronic health issues or chronic health issues, or there's a predisposing factor for these things. I'm I'm wondering, is there, has it been looked at in terms of adverse childhood events, which can certainly impact sort of chronic health? Is there a tie between those and and homelessness as well?
0: I would only be speculating. I can say that there's a very high prevalence of childhood sexual abuse in women who are homeless, over 50%. Uh, There is, it's very, very common. I mean, I would say more than more likely than not that I can find a history of significant physical or emotional abuse in childhood among patients I take care of. That all said, I think we all know of individuals who seem to have everything going for them and they lost their job. And depending on the rental market, they just lost a place to live.
1: Paul, your question reminded me that I just didn't want this to blow by the audience because I hadn't really thought about it, but there's been some things just in in my practice and that you said, Stefan, that made me think of this the, the fact, the, asking the question about like, are you safe? Because I, I was reading that traumatic brain injuries are much more common in the homeless population. And there's just a, a huge safety issue uh, that, that you can think about asking and, and that might affect their sleep. You know, if you're not feeling safe when you're sleeping on the street and that can contribute to exhaustion and stress. And how do you address that? Do you, is that something you ask about or are you just kind of aware that that's something that patients are going through?
0: The way I ask might be a little bit self-serving in this following sense. I'm asking people with the hope and the expectation that they have some ideas about what would best assure their safety. Uh, I will ask, where are you staying? What's, is there, you know, to what extent is it safe? What do you do to protect your safety? (laughs) And my hope is that they'll have some sort of plan. I cannot uh, assume that the healthcare system can dive in and remitigate all the risks that are in fact applicable to that individual now in the va to be fair we have a ton of social resources so if somebody literally were to say i'm actually feeling really unsafe where i am right now i know how to really work all these incredible social workers and housing and sheltering resources that are available and that's not mean i'm going to help everybody not everybody can use every resource but i will say well do you want me to reach out and try to get help for that is that is that it, your view of what I should do next? And if they say yes, I'll say, well, then I'll work on it. Uh, but it, it, that I put a lot of decision-making authority in the patient in front of me, rather than the notion that I'm gonna rescue them from that. But if they say, yeah, I'd love you to make some calls, then we make calls.
3: I have one more kind of epidemiologic question, which is just about how, how the uh, population that's homeless is broken down in terms of kind of uh, numbers that we know of that are affiliated with uh, Veterans Administration, uh, as well as kind of uh, how big of a population uh, the female homeless population is.
0: So let's see. Uh, Veterans, the number of veterans who are homeless seven, eight years ago is around 75,000 on a single night. Bear in mind that whenever we use a cross-sectional number, two to four times as many are likely to experience homelessness over the course of a year. That 75,000 number for veterans has dropped down into the 30s as a result of relatively aggressive efforts at housing. People experiencing homelessness on a single night based on a count usually done in January number around 550,000. There are reasons to be concerned that the count is missing a fair number of people who might be in abandoned buildings or staying in outlying areas from urban centers. So I think you have to fudge it upward And there's a debate about how much to do that. In terms of women, I am ballparking because I don't have the number right in front of me, but typically I think I see things like nine to 15% are women who are experiencing homelessness. Then within women, more often than men, they are accompanied by children. And so when we talk about the homeless I see on the street, it's a lot less likely to be women because once you are a homeless woman with a child, There are a number of resources that spring into action to at least provide temporary accommodation in almost any community, starting with the YWCA and agencies like that. But still, that number has been growing, family units that experience homelessness over the last decade or so. And a lot of my thinking is still grounded on homeless individuals. That makes sense to us as internists. But at various times, we're going to be taking care of people who have responsibility for children and whose ability to participate in care will be hindered or limited by virtue of having to watch out for that kid.
1: Stefan, so with, with the time left, we're going we're gonna to talk about some of the specific considerations that people should have treating conditions that are common to us as internists, but that, that we see a lot in, in patients who are homeless. Can you talk a little bit about, uh, let's, just, let's take high blood pressure, one of the most common ones, any special considerations there when you're seeing, let's say this patient, telehealth, the patient tells you, yeah, I have high blood pressure, I've been on meds in the past, but I don't have any right now. How would you approach that?
0: With less than ideal records, I would ask if they'd been on a medication before and if it was well-tolerated, and I would steer toward what they previously used if it was within the realm of things we consider first-line therapies. If the only thing they tolerated, uh, they they know about is reserpine, of course, we're going to have a different conversation. (laughs) But if they say, you know, look, I was on this and it worked, I'm going to start with the supposition that they may know something and that I might start that. Once a day, medication is preferable. Uh, to multiple times a day. That's no different from almost any other population. I think that we have some concerns with diuretic treatments if the individual has to locate a place to pee uh, and doesn't have access to bathrooms, particularly in the startup period with thiazides or with uh, obviously furosemide, which wouldn't be first line uh, for hypertension. So I'm going to veer a little bit toward either a medicine where I don't need to check labs or where I don't need to help them find a restroom uh, over the course of the day obviously that makes, you know, calcium channel blockers and if you know they're creatinine up front and ACE inhibitor a bit more attractive. Um, I don't know if that's radically different from how people operate in a lot of primary care.
1: It sounds, yeah, it sounds pretty practical. I, I think the point about diuretic is that that was something, Nora and I were talking about that earlier uh, before we started. A patient, there there was a patient who kept coming in with, with ascites, it wasn't hypertension, but he kept coming in with ascites and would would get drained and then would leave and when he was here for longer periods of time, we could see the diuretics were working. We asked him, why doesn't he take them? And he said he was worried about getting arrested. He didn't have a bathroom. He'd have to like go in alleyways. And it was just something yeah. that I hadn't really thought about.
0: So, uh, Yeah, COVID-19, by the way, which is, we're sp- speaking about this at a time of a pandemic. It's made very clear that my community does not have public restrooms. One of the first things that was done in response to the pandemic was to set up places to pee.
1: Yeah. What about uh, what about diabetes and the storage of insulin and the the concern there's there is a population with substance use disorder as well, and ne- carrying around needles might not always and syringes could could make people targets for like stealing their equipment. can you Can you talk about how you approach that?
0: So the storage of insulin, to my understanding, it's relatively robust if you're not in sky-high hot temperatures. Uh, and, Under ideal circumstances, you still would refrigerate or at least store in the part of your backpack that's not facing the sun. That's the advice from the National Healthcare for the Homeless Council. Uh, The issue of needles with injection drug use, I actually had not dealt with. And that partly has to do with the fact that I moved to a community that has IV drug use, but had a lot less of it in the homeless population in about 2002, which is when I came to Birmingham. So I haven't thought as much about it but I would tend to think that in the end you're going to navigate that based on the individual and of course if their injectable drug happened to be an opioid you could try to treat the opioid use disorder broadly speaking if insulins what works I would rather shoulder the risk of working with them on their substance use and I mean, the marginal impact of my providing access to a needle seems to me low in comparison to all the other things that are driving substance use in their lives, whereas uh, the marginal impact of making sure they can safely uh, inject uh, insulin uh, seems fairly high. So I wouldn't be terribly worried about that up front.
1: Yeah, the the article I was reading wasn't necessarily suggesting the patient themselves would be uh, using the syringe. They just said that if they... If, if another, someone else would steal their equipment Uh, and, and, but the insulin pens, in any case, the insulin pen's a better choice because it's, it's easier to store. Uh, You can kind of keep it, like you said, in the part of your backpack, not facing the sun and should last for about a month. And
0: I would definitely ask the person about, I mean, pens are not always paid for depending on where you are, what setting you were in. So you may have low tech solutions only because that's all that's paid for in your current situation. So you have to be aware of that. Uh, definitely would ask people, where are you storing things? And do you have a locked space? That applies to narcotics especially.
2: And in this population where I imagine there's also a lot of um, food insecurity as well, how do, any tips, tricks, things that you're mindful about in terms of avoiding hypoglycemia when you're sort of dealing with, with patients who maybe
0: require insulin or, or your type 2 diabetics in general? Yeah. <laughs> What's fascinating is that if an individual is homeless and using sheltered uh, arrangements they may actually be having a high carb diet with relatively low access <laughs> to other food uh, obesity is fairly prevalent among individuals who are uh without homes although malnutrition and vitamin deficiency still crops up as well i even wrote a paper about pellagra and in two individuals who are homeless in boston i think i would just ask you know what are you eating what's the situation and i think any internist would run a higher a1 say if they thought that the food access was an issue, and certainly for unsheltered individuals, it very often is. Uh, The converse situation is when people are in these shelters or housing arrangements, very often the diet is not that good. And it's going to be pro-glycemic, I guess.
3: How do you educate patients about dealing with that, um, given that they won't have very much control over their diet
1: at Nora, many times are you asking him what's his spiel like what does it yeah. sound like when he tells a patient that
3: i think i am <laughs>
0: <laughs> i think my spiel is not that good but it would be along the lines of wait a sell right. it. <laughs> <laughs> what do you have what are they serving there what are they serving there where you're staying uh sounds like bread okay Do they have any meat where you live? Is there anything that's not just a bunch of carbs that usually the person will be like, well, you know, there's these beans or there's this meat or there's this peanut butter. Okay. So at the very least, do you think you could balance things out a little bit and make sure that you get access to that stuff that's not just carbs and sugar? Uh, Is it tolerable to you? Would you be able to do that? We might have a little bit more steady sugar control if we took that approach. Uh, people often do that. One of the challenges we do have though is, as I said, these folks stop being homeless at a certain point. And very often, once you have a check and you have your own fridge, the diet becomes less controlled <laughs> rather than more so. And there has, in the ideal situation, is a home visit and you see what individuals have in the refrigerator.
1: Stefan, so we we already talked a little bit about substance use disorder. And, and on our prior show, we talked with you about opioid use disorder. Do you have a specific preference? Is, is methadone maintenance or buprenorphine, is there, is there one winner specifically in, in a patient who's homeless?
0: Yeah. So if we're talking about opioid use disorder, broadly speaking, it is going to be far easier to manage buprenorphine and naloxone compared to methadone maintenance programs where the individual would have to show up at a community-based program very often on a daily basis for a significant period of time. Those programs present transportation dilemmas unless your community is extremely enriched with them locally, which might be the case in, say, Boston, but it's not really going to work easily in a lot of southern cities. So, yeah, buprenaloxone is a much better option uh, if the patient has experience with that. The uh, long-acting injectable is very hard to get. It's typically behind a number of barriers in terms of accessibility unless your city or your state has, you know, a remarkable a generosity, so we're talking about sublingual tablets or strips. It's really important to understand that the survey data suggests that the most common addiction that we see in individuals who are homeless is to alcohol. So the conversation on alcoholic beverages is really key. The situation in our national data with overdose or self-report of having had an overdose was that alcohol was the predominant substance that individuals who were homeless, and we're talking about veterans, to be fair, reported having had an overdose too. That's not easy to treat with medication. We have medications to offer, and I'm sure you've done shows on that. Um, Naltrexone is relatively easy to prescribe orally. The injectable sometimes is itself subject to barriers, although it's more efficacious. Uh, Those are ones that I have some familiarity with. But very often, the addiction recovery process isn't going to work as an isolated medical intervention in any addiction, and I would say less so with alcohol, because there's no one medication that's going to stop the factors that were driving the use. Can,
1: can I just take this opportunity, because this came up in uh, an article that Paul had sent to us, that the, the idea of harm reduction, that... I was raised in a world where abstinence was the only evidence that you were in recovery from a substance use disorder what was alcohol or opioids or anything and more recently it's come to my attention from some of the addiction medicine folks that we've talked to that just any reduction in use of substances is is a win and should be better for the patient's health and uh you know alcoholism is very like patients often relapse but if we can even just get them to cut back so plugging them in with resources is is still a good idea this was just i can't talk about this enough paul because it was just such a just such a big thing that i learned in the past couple years that like in my life i just if you still watch movies and tv like the only you're only in recovery if you're totally abstinent and that's just not the real world
0: yeah i mean ultimately what i wish to be able to do is to continue to care for somebody who's alive and moving forward in their life I may, in my own mind, harbor a goal for them. I may hope on my own behalf that I can see them achieve that abstinence. But at the end, what I want is somebody who's alive. And it may be that if we reduce the number of uh, hard liquor benders to one every three months from one a month, we've increased the chance that my patient's going to stay alive and have more chances to figure out a new pathway. Uh, At Cashlack, there are probably some patients who have never achieved long periods of sobriety, uh, and we believe that there's still a reason why they are still with us, and we're just waiting for it to become evident, and sometimes it does. You just need to take your time. We wanted to talk about feet, but- We well, need to talk about feet. Yeah, this Paul? Was, yeah.
3: Everyone's been waiting with bated <laughs> breath.
2: It is my one of my least favorite topics, just in life, really, but on the other hand, if you, if you review- any, even if you do a cursory review of any of the articles talking about care of uh, homeless patients, like there's a lot devoted to care of the feet and examining the feet and being mindful of the feet. Can you, can you talk us through some of the considerations of the feet because it seems like it's critically
0: important and this is an area of the body that seems to be at particular risk. So, the issues are that one is on one's feet a lot if one has to shuffle from one place to another to find resources, housing, shelter, meet with probation officers if that's the case, find social services, food, being on your feet a lot and also having uh, potentially overweight and other medical illnesses is just a setup for pathologies sometimes related to diabetes like nail infections tinea pedis skin breakdown between the toes just pain in the metatarsal areas pain in the heels uh, and if your footwear isn't ideal which is often the case if you're poor then Uh, That's just a setup. Across the literature, one review suggested that between 9 and 65% of cross-sectional samples of homeless individuals have significant feet problems, typically calluses, corns, nail pathologies, um, infections. The trick is that it's really, really hard to do the things that involve good self-care if you're perpetually upright and having to move around. (sighs) What do you do about it? Well, if you can provide socks and shoes in your clinic that could be very helpful. Our homeless patient-aligned care team has a giant closet, and we receive a perpetual storage of donated new socks, not used socks, and we even buy them when we run out so that we can provide socks. That's a fairly low-tech intervention. Shoes is a little harder. Uh, Donations of shoes help. It's harder to buy those at a low cost. If there's podiatry easily accessible, that makes a big difference, but it's important to understand that if you're working in a healthcare for the homeless primary care clinic in a state that has not expanded Medicaid, that might not be easily available at all unless you somehow wrangle away into some sort of safety net hospital, of which there may be none in your county or three counties over. So it's definitely not a straightforward thing. Foot soaking is a possibility and could be part of care, I have, for instance, had people soak their feet, then apply—it's uh, acetyl salicylic acid topical formulation—and I cannot remember what it's sold under the name of. Uh, apply it three times a night to try to melt down a corn and then file it away, but do it slowly. And I just give people counsel on the on the work that they need to do—not all at once. Don't rip the whole thing off and wind up with in an infected toe, but try to reduce the corns. Uh, the other thing that comes up is with footwear. Sometimes getting insoles or uh, so- better socks, and these are just completely logical things. They're what you might do for yourself, uh, but it can take a moment to remember to talk about them in clinic.
1: Yeah, look at look at your patient's feet. I I saw a patient in the hospital uh, it, within the past year, cash lack, and he had plastic bags on his feet. He he was homeless. He had plastic bags on his feet. And he had been there for, like, I saw him in the morning. He had already been there for like 12 hours. The residents had, and, and he hadn't taken his shoes off. It wasn't the residents' fault. They had asked him. He just wouldn't, he would not take his shoes off. And he had plastic bags with wet socks inside the plastic bags. And it was a mess. Like, it just, and it just got me thinking this, all these articles talking about feet had me thinking about this gentleman who was just, he was trying to protect his feet with the plastic bags, but it was not working.
0: couple thoughts come up with that. One is that fear of smell is a real issue for the clinicians and the patients. And some of our qualitative data, the word smell, when we just did interviews with providers and patients, it came up a lot. Patients are really worried and afraid about how they're going to be viewed if they smell bad. And clinicians may not want to smell something that smells bad. I mean, just understandably, if you can work up the strength to say, hey, um, it's important for me to taking care of you to see your feet and see what's going on. Can I do that? Asking permission is a nice touch. Getting down so that your head is lower than the patient's head and that you're looking at their feet is actually a gesture of humility. And it helps the patient understand that you care for them and that you don't hold yourself above them. Uh, finally, you can actually look at the feet and see what's going on and maybe help out. But all those things you have to realize there's tremendous risk of embarrassment. Are clinic was actually structured to have a shower attached to it because we were worried about some patients who might not want to be seen unless they could shower before they were seen. So you have to recognize you're dealing with an area of high sensitivity and the patients are often aware of it.
3: I also have actually had a couple patients now in med school and in residency who have stored important things in their socks and so that has actually added another layer completely to um, kind of the foot exam and actually asking for, for, for permission before you just do your routine um, yeah. exam of the the feet and toes.
2: Yeah. Real I quick. Yeah. Let uh, I me mean, ask Claire to cut this part out, but there's – I'll never forget a patient who <laughs> – was sold to me. He was under domiciled, had alcohol use disorder. And that to the ER's credit, they took a great social history, had not had a drink in a couple of days, and was febrile and tachycardic. And they're like, we're worried about withdrawal. We're going to admit him for that. And this will be a social admission. And I'm like, great. I hadn't met the patient yet. As he's being wheeled past me, my... Third year medical student just pointed and was like, his foot's black. And then the patient <laughs> went in the room. And like, this was all florid sepsis. And so there's a little bit of anchoring. There's a little oh bit gosh. like, it's, there was, so rather than sort of not not by not doing the foot exam, they missed someone who actually had gas gangrene in the foot. And it was a surgical yep. <laughs> urgency, if not emergency. Yeah. And like, all, no, this was alcohol withdrawal. This was all, this poor guy was horribly septic because they did not, not because they didn't, but it would have been delayed because uh, the foot exam was not done. And they were sort of anchoring on other features of his social history. We have I've to, had to that cut kind that pause.
1: What's we that? have to cut that.
2: Uh, yeah, yeah. Let me. Well, let me think on it. I'll get back to you. <laughs> <laughs> All
1: right. Well, not to
2: impugn the ER, who I think are do heroes' work. So that's, that's the only. <laughs> yeah, audience. Anyway. If
1: you if if you uh, if you get to hear that story, you're you're lucky. Um, I think the last before we talk a little bit about the delivery of care models, I think the last thing we just wanted to ask about is Hep C cirrhosis. Any any specific considerations there or pearls that you have for the audience about caring for those conditions?
0: So I will comment on hep C and say that in those areas that have made it a focus to make sure that they deliver hep C care, you can provide oral therapy for hepatitis C with reasonable success at obtaining sustained viral uh, remission, uh, SVR. There was a study from Boston by, I think it's Josh Barocas, which showed a very high success rate, I mean, over 80%. They did obviously not include all the patients and I haven't yet double checked who was not included for the therapy, but it's definitely within the realm of the possible to treat hep C and that report looked very good. With cirrhosis, I have not recently taken care of anybody who had cirrhosis and was homeless at the same time. I think that's a very uh, challenging situation precisely because of the diuretic regimen. So I don't have have much to add on that, I think the focus should be on trying to use the presence of medical illness to wrangle resources to get that individual housed uh, by presenting that, gosh, we're going to have almost an impossible time taking care of this individual unless we accommodate them.
1: And with the hep C for the audience, this is something that I learned in the past year embarrassingly or, or forgot it that I knew, I guess, but the the, the the reinfection thing is a possibility. So depending on your patient's risk factors, you got to counsel them that even if they're cured, they, they can get hep C again.
2: Stefan, are there any special considerations uh, for this particular population now that we're sort of in the, and I'm so tired of saying this phrase, the era of COVID, but now that we're in the midst of this coronavirus pandemic, how has that impacted this population and how directly has that impacted um, their specific
0: care? So far. What has emerged is that shelters and congregate living situations are clearly ripe for outbreaks. So in some cities where there has been an identified cluster of cases, uh, they'll suddenly test everyone in a shelter and find that 30 or 50 percent are positive. This happened in uh, Seattle, San Francisco, and Boston, and a recent report from the CDC. Conversely, when you don't yet have an identified cluster within a shelter, the percentages Uh, When they then go to such a shelter and just test everybody there, the percentages are relatively low. That's what we know as of May 5th, 2020, based on a CDC report that was out a week or two earlier. If you're in a community like mine where there's not a ton of sheltering and more people are sort of spread out, they're unsheltered and spread out, it isn't crystal clear if there is going to be a large outbreak of this viral menace uh, because the congregating isn't happening. The shelters often are incredibly cautious about who they let in, but we just don't have many shelters where people can go. And we're not having all these folks stacked up on a sidewalk like you might see in Seattle or San Francisco. And so right now we're really just sitting in a position of being puzzled. We haven't yet sent mobile vans out to test everybody. So maybe there is an unknown uh, contagion happening, but since they're all spread out, we may never uh, see a large outbreak. And I, I'm crossing my fingers that that will be the case. If one does have that problem, then there are people you can ask about how best to accommodate quarantine, isolate. And I hope in the long run there'll be a way to test everybody who enters a shelter so that we know what we're dealing with up front. We're just not there yet.
1: Yeah, I know some of the some of the large. I'm in a large city at, at Cashlack Cash Northeast. There's a, a an old hotel that was kind of converted into a place where patients can go for respite once they're stable in the hospital, and that's that's how they're sending people. Because people, it's not like you can just tell someone go home, stay in your room for a couple weeks or a week or two until you're until you're feeling better. So,
3: yeah, we have a very similar program in Boston with Boston Hope.
1: So the last thing that we were going to get into, because uh, we have to let you go, is getting late. Is is a little bit about the care models, and yeah. can you can you talk about what might exist? I imagine this differs from community to community, but can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, the two variables to think about here are funding streams and whether you're going to tailor your primary care model for the individuals who are homeless. And probably, I guess maybe now that I said two variables, three variables, the third is post-hospital care. So for funding streams, many communities have a federally qualified health center that receives a grant. That grant is relatively small, but it is supposed to enable them to serve homeless individuals. A Healthcare for the homeless grant by itself though, doesn't deliver a ton of care unless the same organization has a Medicaid population who it can bill for. If individuals who are homeless single adults can get Medicaid, then federally qualified health centers do have uh, capacity to build up quite a bit of resources to deliver a lot of care. And that's a great strength if you're in a Medicaid expansion state, which I am not. Uh, the separate element is what service model do you want to have, regardless of what your funding stream is. Tailoring primary care is an expression we use to refer to decisions that can be made by the management to make the primary care services a little bit more tailored to a given population. It can be training, it can be extra time for visits. It could be providing an entire clothes closet and shower in association with the clinic. It could be having social workers who are networked and linked to existing homeless services in the community. The data on t- homeless service tailoring has accrued over about the past decade and tends to suggest that the patients have a lot better experience. There is some evidence, albeit weaker, that when you tailor primary care, individuals might use the emergency room a little bit less. But usually those studies are pre-post study designs where you just see if people's use went down a little bit after they entered the clinic and it's not as compelling a form of data. We don't have much data yet that a tailored service model necessarily results in better health, Uh, but it does result in a better experience for the patient and that often means better longitudinal uh, relationships. I guess the other element here I mentioned was post-hospital care. So there are people who are too sick to be on the streets or in a congregate living situation and too well to be in an acute care hospital. If you're in a community that's willing to do it, they can invest in something called a homeless medical respite program. There are over 50 such programs around the country. One can check them up on the National Healthcare for the Homeless council website these programs are configured very differently from each other based on the amount of money available and the local history of the people who've provided that service but in general it becomes a great post hospital recovery option when a shelter really isn't appropriate so uh if you're in a community where that doesn't exist it's worth talking to hospital management about it's particularly advantageous if there's a Medicaid expansion because then they can bill for the services they render there.
2: And then what about this prospect of street medicine, which might be a show unto itself, or sort of going hmm. uh, actually out in the community and providing sort of what what care that you can there? Has is there, is there been shown to be benefit in terms of decreased utilization or increased health outcomes or anything like that? Or is is this maybe not the show to have that discussion?
0: <laughs> the tentative comment I would say is that street medicine has a record that's predominantly in the stories of the people who provide it with less research that I've seen. I haven't been much of a street doctor. I was a shelter doctor for a good long period of time. The felt reality of the people who are going to find their clients is that these are folks who are in the streets because shelters don't want them. And they're very often people who have challenging relationships with healthcare institutions too. So it stands to reason that going out and meeting people is a way of building relationships that you can't build if they have to come to you. I tend to feel like that's a good thing, but from an evidence perspective, I don't think it's easy one to randomize and it's a hard one to study.
3: Do you find that the shelter-based embedded clinics work better in terms of ensuring continuity than clinics that are slightly more independent?
0: Yeah, so in the realm of my experience and we're trying to study these features of service design to see if they are associated with better experiences but in the realm of my life going to shelters has often meant discovering patients who couldn't get in the doors of clinics even clinics that were receiving grant funding to serve them so you find people in a shelter you then ease their way back to a larger more resourced environment by virtue of phoning in the staff in advance, here's the one I'm sending over tomorrow, here are the concerns that I have. The other thing that I've certainly experienced a lot is that when I get on the phone and show a patient that I'm engaging in communication on their behalf, those patients regard me as a credible actor and want to see me again. So there's some immediate care you can provide, and there's also a lot of relationship building that happens that way.
1: I think we need take-home points so we can let you go. This, this has been great, but if you could pick just a couple things that you wanted to leave the audience with, what what would that be?
0: I think probably three things come to mind. One is to really ask in specific terms about how people are living and where they're going. The word, are you homeless, isn't really—I don't think it's that helpful— compared to understanding precisely where somebody stays and where they store their stuff and where they think they're going to be next week. So that takes a kind of pause. It's not review of systems conversation. It's hey, I want to understand where you're living. Ask those questions. The second thing is to not be afraid to tailor the care uh, that you deliver or to customize the decisions you make with the patient to really fit their situation. And the best way to figure out what's going to work is to ask the patient. So, hey, I'm thinking of prescribing A, B, and C and proposing this treatment. Do you think that's going to work? Patients are very, uh, if they're adults, they have a lot of common sense about those things. and can tell you, yes, it will, no, it won't. The third thing I think that can be quite important is to recognize that the patients we take care of have a history of being poorly served in healthcare environments, often either because individual clinicians got angry and upset. Or because they observe that we are terrible at communicating with each other. So I want to mitigate those two things. I cannot get angry and upset by taking a genuine interest and in enjoying learning about the person, even if they don't do what I thought was the best medical plan. So being interested in people mitigates getting angry and upset. To mitigate communication failures, it really helps to pick up the phone when the patient is with you or to bring your allied health professional into the room and say, you know, I just spoke with this patient. This is what we think we want to do. What do you think? That gets the whole team on the same page and it also shows the patient that you're paying careful attention to the thing that usually goes wrong in healthcare. And that earns your trust.
1: All right. We'll leave it there. Stefan, this was great. I mean this was this was really fantastic. I, I had a really great time. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much for letting me do this. I appreciate it. And I look forward to the podcast. This has been another episode
2: of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Strong work. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food Do get our weekly show notes in your inbox.
3: We're committed to providing you with high value, practice-changing knowledge, and to do so, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producer for this episode, I guess me, and to our social media team, Hannah R. Abrams on Twitter, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Instagram, and Chris the Chew Man Chew on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Nora Toronto.
1: And I've been Matthew Frank Watto.
2: And we would be remiss without thanking the great Stuart Brigham for our theme music, as well as Claire Morgan from Not for editing. And as always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye.
1: And thanks to our partner, VCU Health Continuing Education, who's helping us offer free CE credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals. Check out curbsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information.